Today we'll be discussing diversity in comedy, and we'll be discussing epilepsy. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today we'll be discussing the issue of diversity in comedy, and we'll be discussing epilepsy. But before we get started, Ali, you're joining us from a remote location. Mm-hmm. Also a bit of a disgusting location, but that's less important. <laughs> the hotel is not up to standards. Don't mention the chain. I will never mention the name. I will never mention the name because some of the versions of this are quite nice. No, this is I've never had this happen before where I went into my room last night. It's supplied, you know, by a comedy club. So I'm not paying for it. So it feels weird to say this, but I was like, I can't stay in this room. This room feels claustrophobic and gross, like this paint peeling. I was actually very, very surprised. I didn't think it would be like this. And I took a gamble and I said, can I switch to a a king size bed? I thought the room would be bigger. So I'm in a bigger room, but I have to apologize for the sound. Let me just say that none of this concerns our listeners. The sound like right now I'm looking at the door. You know how you can sometimes slide a letter under a door. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think you could slide a textbook or a binder (laughs) under this door. I'm hearing every single conversation in the hallway. I've never worried about me being too loud for people in the hallway. It's a bit of a role reversal here. Anyway, here we are. I put some pillows around me. I've tried oh, to wow. do what I can. I've tried to make it as friendly from a sound perspective as possible. I'm excited for what we're going to talk about. So hopefully that excitement compensates for the sound quality. Okay, Ali, so why don't we get started? I wanted to ask you a bit about diversity in comedy. And this comes from a course, as we've mentioned in the past on the the podcast, you teach a course at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, often called the Harvard of the North, only from people who went there and by nobody else in the country of Canada. Queen's University has a it's a drama department. I always get this wrong. It's the drama department that you the teach School in? of Drama and Music. Also, McGill University has T-shirts that you can get that you would say Canada's Harvard. So oh, there's a few people who are under Do that. Do they really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think you can get that at the local bookstore. Maybe you can, but, you know, you've seen that as well. Possibly the most obnoxious shirt you can wear as a Canadian, but uh, there you have it. If we can have another debate about the merits of McGill versus Queens. You went to McGill. I, I like McGill. But anyway, so you teach a course and you were telling me that you teach a course on diversity in comedy. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that I wanted to, I just filed that in the back of my head. Like we should talk about that for a podcast episode. So I guess the first thing is for this topic and this course, did you come up with the course? Did the school ask you to come up with it? How did that come about? This is one of the rare times in my life where I've been like truly compelled to do something. I had been given one class in a September semester to teach called Introduction to Stand-Up Comedy. And I don't consider myself an overachiever, but something happened. You know, I was chatting in a Zoom call in a, in a you know office hour, basically, with one of my students. She was one of the very few students of color. And, you know, I pronounced her name the way it was supposed to be pronounced. And she told me that I was the, so just to give you some context, she was in her fourth year, fourth and final year, poli sci. And so her eighth semester at Queens, and she said, you're the second person to pronounce my name correctly. In eight semesters, she says, yeah, in fact, the first teacher who pronounced my name properly, I was so taken with that person that they're now my advisor right? They're the teacher I work with very closely. I was like, oh, that's kind of strange. So that really sat in the back of my head for a while. And she's from Toronto, you know, she's from the greater Toronto area. So she's not some from some exotic location, but she came two and a half hours past Toronto to a place where nobody could sort of understand her name and probably had no understanding of her background. And then another student of mine, was sharing a story and you're supposed to make these stories comedic in some way, but some of them share personal stories. And she was talking about how it's been a challenge for her at Queens because of the, the wealth 
of many of the students. So she was talking about how some students, you know, their 18th birthday was like, we're going to stay at this property that my father owns in the Bahamas. And so we flew to the Bahamas for the weekend, that kind of thing. Whereas she was saying that, you know, my 18th birthday party, we walked from my backyard into a field behind my backyard and we just had some drinks because that's what we could afford to do. So it's a little bit difficult if that's your means and then somebody else can take a private plane to the Caribbean for their birthday. How do you connect? So just talking, thinking about that disparity of wealth and then thinking about the, I would say not complete lack. There's definitely a part of the student body that is diverse, but I think, you know, I don't know. I was just like, I I think I, I need to, I absolutely need to talk about diversity in comedy. And the reason was because it's a completely different perspective. If you're a white dude who wants to do comedy, there's really no barriers to entry. You just go up and you start to, but for people coming from various cultural backgrounds, they have their own limiting beliefs that they've probably grown up with. They have cultural barriers, people who will judge them for doing that, expectations from their own cultures, expectations of what they were supposed to do culturally. And then once they're on stage, the audience has certain stereotypes, you know, certain thoughts that they have about them, certain preconceived notions, and they have to push through that. And I just thought, you know, just thinking about, and we've had Iman, I hate to use her always as sort of like the poster woman for this, but my friend Iman El Husseini, who's been a guest on our podcast with her wife, Jess Solomon, she's a perfect example of the challenges that lie within being a diverse comic, because she is Palestinian and Muslim and a woman and queer. And so she comes up and Already, just as a female on stage, you really have to fight through a lot of these presupposed notions that people have, like, ah, it's a woman, it's not going to be funny. That still exists. It's not the way it was 10 years ago, but it definitely still exists. You know, a lot of female friends that I have still get the, you were pretty funny for a woman, or normally I don't like female comics, but you were good. Why do you have to say that? Why are you even compelled to say anyway? That whole stuff, you know, I think it had just been percolating in the back of my mind and it came to the front of my mind. And I went to the dean immediately, the head of the department, I should say. And I was like, I'd like to pitch a, a second class. You know, like I'm barely understanding how to teach a class to begin with. And <laughs> yeah. now I'm pitching a second class. It was kind of ridiculous, but I really, I've never felt so compelled to do something. They were enthusiastic about that? Sure. I mean, I think it, it, it's part of a, you know, I think Queens as a university is probably pointing the mirror at itself a little bit and, and asking itself some questions about have we done a, a good job at being diverse about like, you know, upholding diversity in our hiring, in our student body. And and I think in a lot of cases, the answer was probably no, including my own hiring. My own hiring was part of, you know, a diversity initiative. So I was like, well, let me bring in a little bit more diversity rather than just being sort of a tokenistic hire. Let me lean right into this. Well, it's interesting. I think, you know how much diversity, you know, they call it EDI, equality, diversity, inclusion. It's taken off so much as to be a priority in post-secondary education that people were using the term EDI. I didn't even know what they were talking about. I'm like, what is this word EDI you guys are talking about? Because it, it just became a part of the lexicon. And we got to do EDI. We got to have grants for EDI. We got to have, you know, someone in charge, a dean of EDI. And it just went so quickly. I missed the boat on this new abbreviation. So when you're kind of approaching talking about this subject, do you just kind of go historically? You had mentioned in a previous episode about the roots of stand-up comedy being racist in itself. So is that where you would start the course at like, these are the, the racist roots or is that too much, you know, too heavy at the beginning? How do you handle it? I like to do that at the beginning because some students take the class with the assumption that it's going to be super light and super fun and super easy, right? Stand-up comedy, how hard could it be? I've been making friends laugh since I was four years old, right? This is the, the notion that some people have. And it's no different from like, People take psychology and like, I think I'll take psychology. That sounds like it'll be easy. I've been playing mind games with friends from the beginning of my life or, you know, I think I'll go into law. 
I can argue really well, right? Not understanding the full spectrum of what's required in these courses and these programs. So I, I kind of go in heavy immediately. And there's two things I really try to nail down, which go against what might be the conventional wisdom about comedy. Number one, it has incredibly racist origins. And I think people should know that. Number two, it's not even close to as powerful a medium as you think it is, or as you may think it is. And I always go to, you know, John Stewart said this, if, if comedy had the power to effect change, we wouldn't have had a Donald Trump. We wouldn't have this divisive society. We wouldn't have a hundred different things that you can look out your window and see because John Stewart himself and the Daily Show and, and, and so many, you know, shows that it influenced and people that it influenced, they would have had an effect on society. They would have shone a light on society where people would have been like, well, this where we, we look hypocritical or we look stupid or this is we're being challenged and mocked. So let's change our course. But they didn't. So a couple of things. First of all, people want to listen more about these two topics. We have a whole topic about can comedy affect change? That's in an old episode. Yeah. And we also have one on the origins of stand-up comedy racist. We just said they are. So given what you said about can comedy affect change, maybe not. Is the diversity in comedy, was that at the forefront and comedy pushed things forward with diversity? Or is it more like it reflected the changes in society? So with the civil rights movement in, in the U.S., it was reflecting that? Or was it a bit ahead? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think it's weird for me to just sort of tease, you know, yes, it has racist origins and leave it at that. If anybody had not heard that, and I sure I'm, we have many listeners who have just come on board in the last few months and have not heard that original episode, but I personally toot our own horn. I think it's an illuminating episode. And if you want to have a listen to that, you can. But I will say this, you know, comedy was built on the mockery. Stand-up comedy in the US was built on the mockery of the Black population. That was really the foundation of it. It was built in minstrelsy. It was built in, in performers in blackface making fun of a group of people who were then not really allowed to partake in the same art form for a long time. It kind of enrages me. So I try to keep it light, but like the idea that, you know, the very people who you enslave to create this country, to help create the country you live in, you then have these caricatures on stage, making fun of them for being lazy I'm not sure how, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just such an incredible lie that you're telling the very people who were so strong and hardworking that, you know, they broke their backs to build the country are now, you know, mocked for being lazy or they're mocked for being buffoons and like uneducated. Yet you've kept them out of education. Of course, they're uneducated. This is, you know, by your own design. So it kind of makes me angry and I, I get a little bit passionate about it, but that's also why I wanted to teach about this. Right. So. It's been a long road for people, particularly African-Americans, getting into stand-up, mainstream stand-up in particular. So you had these, because of the racism that existed, you had these scenes that popped up that were just for community. So, for example, you had what was called the Chitlin Circuit. And the Chitlin Circuit was Black comedians on a circuit across the U.S., particularly on the East Coast, performing for Black audiences. You also had... Jewish comedians, for, right, this is, goes back to a time in the 50s, 60s, Jews were not allowed at certain golf courses and not allowed in certain country clubs, this kind of stuff. So you had what was called the Borst Belt. Again, in the Northeast of the US, it was is where it really originated in the, I think, Poconos. And you had Jewish performers performing for Jewish audiences. And over time, you would have the same thing you would see with um, Latinos, so you'd have this whole Latino market. So your question is about sort of when did it start becoming diverse? It started almost immediately with people from different diverse backgrounds trying to crack into this, not being able to, and then starting their own scenes. And so you have over the years, especially the last 30 years, you have a lot of these comedians who come out and you're like, man, how have I never heard about you? How are you like, nowhere. And then all of a sudden you take, I don't know, America's got talent by storm. And you're this Latino comic who I've never heard about. And often what you'll hear is, oh, I've been working for 15 years, but only in the Latino scene. That's where I cut my teeth. And they're a tougher audience. They're harder on me. They're harder on their own. 
They only give it up when something's truly funny. So to perform for a mainstream white audience now is a walk in the park. And you see that quite a lot. So diversity has always existed on the fringes. I think it's made its way into mainstream stand-up comedy where people don't even really sort of think about it. You have a lineup of like, you know, let's say three women, four men, some are black, some are brown, some are, you know, whatever other backgrounds they are. And that's just the comedy lineup tonight. But my goal with this class was like, let me illuminate the best I can what it meant for some of these people based on their gender, their sexual orientation, their cultural background, what it meant for them to get on this stage and let us not take it for granted. So I think your students would probably find that surprising in terms of the background in the minstrel shows and the struggle to get to where we are today. Anything else that your students kind of found surprising in the course or you include because you're like, yeah, you need to think about this and you probably haven't learned about this before. Yeah, I think for me, the most exciting thing, and, and, I, and I think the students really resonated with it based on the assignments. I think the guests I had, and these are stand-up comics that I know from over the years, and, and I'll have them come in and talk. So I've had Lara Ray come in and talk, and Lara is a trans comedian from Winnipeg, and she... I mean, I've always uh, you know, I've said this ad-, ad nauseum to her, but it's like this incredible combination of education and entertainment. I really, really, really like it because, you know, of course, we all one a progressive person hopes that everybody is a, just a trans ally. But we have to understand that not everyone is simply born a trans ally. You know, I I may have an attitude of like, you know live and let live. Like I I might espouse that because I'm from Quebec and I think like that's the way Quebecers are. But in fact, you could find 10 people in Quebec who have no interest in espousing that attitude, right? So you, no matter where you're from, people in the same family have different perspectives of this, on this kind of thing. So when you're informing and educating, particularly with something like transgenderism being at the forefront of discussion these days, I think it's great. I think you know, we shouldn't assume that people know too much about various backgrounds, whatever they might be. And so when you have these guests talking very frankly about what it means to get on stage in their, whatever you want to call it, in the mask that they wear on stage, you know, not the figurative mask, what it means, what they get from audiences and, and what the reactions are and, and how they have to work on comedy. I think that's always great. So one of my guests this semester was a guy named Ryan McMahon and Ryan McMahon is this terrific indigenous comedian. He has two specials on the CBC. And over the years, he was just talking about his struggles as a comedian. And it was incredibly illuminating. He was at Second City. He was training to be a comedian. Second City will also you know, focus on sketch and improv. It was at Second City, early 2000s, where he realized, I'm not going to be able to do this with a group of people. I, I have to start doing stand-up. I have to create my own thing. And he told the story about trying to develop a sketch with some of his you know, classmates. And his suggestion was like, what if we have a sketch? It's all in the dark. So it's Jean Chrétien comes into a sweat lodge, right? And in the sweat lodge, he gets a little bit woozy and he agrees to give back land to indigenous people. I mean, I even laughed in the moment and I saw my students' reactions to that, you know, most of them completely amused by that idea. And he said, and I think this was 2001, 2002, he said his classmates were like, I don't get it. What is a sweat lodge? What does that mean? What's a smudging? What is that? I don't understand. And also why would Jean Chrétien be giving land back? I don't understand why that's funny. And so he was like, oh, man, my my reality is so far is so like there's so much I need to explain to my classmates to get to the funny of what I think is funny and what connects with me most dearly that this is too great a divide. Right. So sometimes there's an opportunity for education and entertainment. And other times it's like this is a huge, huge gap. So anyway, I, I always thought that was amazing. And then that's what prompted him to be like, I got to get out of this sketch and improv world, people don't understand my roots and my background. And so he he started doing stand-up. Yeah. I mean, I think he still probably is interested in the education. It just, he needs a different mode of delivering that. It just was not going to work with sketch comedy. Sure. My buddy Evan Carter was also talking about, you know, trying to break into acting 
in the 80s and he's a tall very friendly black man and when you meet evan the fact that he's black is sort of incidental right i don't know if he his his father was the first black judge in ontario you know he comes from this like sort of hard working educated family and when he got into acting he was like oh none of that matters because all i was getting as roles were the pimp or the pimp with a heart of gold yeah. he goes that's yeah. it that's it pimp drug dealer or pimp with a heart of gold or drug dealer with a heart of gold that is all that was out there and anytime he made any suggestions like oh maybe i could say ah oh, yeah 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 nah you wouldn't do your character wouldn't do that and so what he did also he was like all right i'm going to create my own stand up comedy thing and what he started doing was pitching his comedy to various music promoters and this was a time where musicians would have comedians open for them so he opened for marvin gay he opened for dion warwick i think he opened for like the temptations you know he has this amazing period of his life where he was opening for some of the biggest bands coming through toronto and then traveling with them on the road a little bit and it was all because there was doors and avenues that were just completely closed to him for him to be like a serious actor and being taken seriously as a black man it just wasn't happening certainly not in the city of toronto or wherever he was trying to crack in so you know that's another thing like i think when young people are complaining about various challenges they have i think it's also important that they remember what what some other challenges look like prior to today so a couple more questions for you. How do you evaluate students on this? I think you were saying before in your other course that you teach, they have to do a stand-up set at the end yeah. of the course. But how do you evaluate this one? This class is also, there's a stand-up set at the end, but there's various assignments throughout. And basically, you know, I find that's the toughest part of this class. Like I really, I'm not a tester. By nature, right? I'm a stand-up comic. There's no quiz at the end of my comedy sets. It's just not in my nature to have quizzes and tests and assignments. But at the end of the day, I, what I'm really trying to do is like, did you get out of this reading, out of this viewing, out of this interview, did you get the message? And I mean, pretty much all the students up until the final should be getting an A, you know I mean? Like everybody's just listening. Everybody's watching. There's a few who are like pretty overwhelmed by their course load and this kind of stuff. So there's a couple of blanks here and there, but in general, they're paying attention and they're getting out of the class exactly what I hope they will. Once it comes to the final presentation, that's where I get very, very excited because I just love seeing that those nerves, that anxiety. I love seeing that you worked on a set for a couple of months. Uh, what do you think of this joke? Maybe this will work. And I don't know. That's like some of the most exciting stuff about stand-up comedy. And they do it from a lens of diversity, their final presentation. So some of them who've taken the first class intro, they do another set four months later. But it's completely grounded in a diversity in the sense that this is a diverse background I have. Here's my challenges with it. This is a diverse background I have, and here's what I find funny about my background at times. Here's a diverse background a friend of mine has. Here's a diverse background I do not have at all, and here's why that becomes funny for me in certain situations. And you know, you have completely like white blonde women who you know trace their heritage generations back to just sort of English, British. That's it, and so it's like, oh man, how do I? crack into this. So the, that's the challenge. Like, how do you come to this with a lens of diversity? Things that you've experienced maybe from different cultures that you haven't understood and how that makes you feel when you don't understand how people make fun of you when you don't understand certain things. All of that is fair game, but there should definitely be some diverse element to the final sets. And did you end up learning anything from your students? I'm glad you asked that because I just had it in mind. I, I was saying, I was suggesting that I think certain you know, young people need to realize what's come before them to see what a real struggle looks like. But I'm glad you asked this question because these young people are struggling a hell of a lot too. I really did have the utmost respect for some of the you know, perseverance and determination and pushing through. I mean, you know, you have these goals and dreams and visions, even if you're not completely goal-oriented and focused, 
you certainly, when you signed up for university, didn't plan for a pandemic. You didn't plan to have online learning. You didn't plan to have like, oh, we're on, we're off, we're on, we're in class, we're out of class, we're in class, but masks on. We're in class, but like shields have to be around everybody. We're in class, but we can't talk to each other in class. We have to be in corners. So that whole element, I mean, you know, as a man in his 40s, I was struggling with that. And students who are, you know, in the most social time of their lives, I think, to watch what they've gone through. And then also some of my students, you know, the, especially the ones who are in the drama department, you know, they weren't allowed to do any drama. So the thing, the very thing that they wanted to do also music, you know, some of these instruments are expelling air droplets, you know, and they can't, I'm in this program because I'm a saxophonist and I want to learn the saxophone. Or I want to learn about this. I want to learn music. I couldn't do it. And that's part of it. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, we're opening up. There's two months left in the semester. We're opening up. So now, you know, bands are getting back together. The Queens players is this sort of, you know, acting troupe and sketch and improv, the Queens player, then, you know, performances, theater performances are back, but it's all crammed into this two month period. Plus their course load. I mean, I, my heart went out to them all. And I, you know, at times I felt like we're on the verge of a mental health crisis, you know, and I don't envy the people who are in the mental health world because they have a lot of work cut out for them. And so what I learned from my students was I was just so impressed with how they pushed through. And as I said, on their assignments, I was like, man, people have listened to the podcasts I signed, like vast majority had read everything. And I think their work ethic was to be commended. It's certainly better than mine was at their age, although that's not saying much. That's a really low bar, but like the, their work ethic was truly, truly mind-blowing. Even though they're like, I don't know what the future holds. I'm living in a pandemic. They upheld a certain you know standard of learning that was really quite impressive. Wow. So the teacher becomes the student. That's a bit much, but no. Yeah, sure. Why not? The teacher does become the student. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm also such a new teacher that I have so much to learn about teaching. And then I'm kind of like open where I'm not like, Hey, you are empty vessels and I'm filling them with knowledge. I'm often, I'm like, do you guys, uh, do you usually do an exam uh, the day before March break or spring break? They're like, no, we do not. I'm like, oh, okay, good. Sorry about that. I'm going to change the syllabus. So I'm also like, you know, just learning how to do this and what protocols are and what the norms are. But All right. So epilepsy is what we're diving into today. And I mean, I think you would probably agree with this, Asif. if you fashion yourself to be quite an expert on epilepsy. And of course, it's a little bit heartbreaking that we need to have experts in this subject. And also, I was, you know, when people have asked me, you know, what does a pediatric neurologist typically do? I'll ask you so that I can answer that question on behalf of others. What is your typical day? And you always say epilepsy first. You see a lot of epilepsy cases. And I think you should correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it makes up the bulk of the issues that you see in children. Is that right? Yeah, Ali, we definitely see a lot of it. This is what we call the bread and butter of the specialty of pediatric neurology is epilepsy. And I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked when we were talking about you know, ADHD and autism and this kind of stuff. Is it on the rise or are we just sort of recognizing it more? Are people more active in finding help or seeking help for it? Or is there more epilepsy in society right now than there was, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years ago? That's a very interesting question. So in general, no. The incidence of epilepsy is about 1% of the population. So that's remaining relatively stable. But there are a few other things to consider. For example, and this is kind of getting to the bigger aspects of pediatric neurology, but for example, when it comes to premature babies, the age at which we would kind of resuscitate a baby who's born premature and do everything for them has gotten younger and younger over time. Like 22 weeks is not considered, you know, too early in some centers to kind of resuscitate and do everything. But the earlier you are born, the more complications, including neurologic complications, including seizures. 
Okay. The other thing is there's more and more genetic diagnoses, which you know we now have treatments for, but maybe the treatments aren't complete. So in other words, you have these rare genetic diagnoses, seizures are part of them, and these treatments that they have, the new gene therapies and things like that can prolong life, or enzyme replacement therapy can prolong life, but you may still have seizures. So in other words, there are kids who are living longer who may have passed away early on because of being okay. born too early, having a rare genetic thing, who are now living longer. So the amount of people living with epilepsy has been going up in certain populations. Okay. I think most people would know what epilepsy is, but they would only know that it is it manifests itself in the form of seizures. But for those who aren't aware, can you talk about what is the definition of epilepsy? Yeah. So let's take a step back. So a seizure is uncontrolled electrical activity that happens in the brain that often then causes something, you know, abnormal movements, abnormal sensations, etc. And if you have more than one seizure, that's what epilepsy is. So that's the technical definition of epilepsy is having more than one seizure. In other words, you could have a seizure the day you're born and you could have another seizure like the day before you die. And then only at that time, when you're like 70, whatever, would you be diagnosed with epilepsy. That seems strange. I'm going to be honest with you, that seems weird. So it's kind of a strange definition, like two seizures makes it. If you just have one seizure, well, you're just a person who had one seizure. Okay. I mentioned that about 1% of the population has epilepsy, but about 7% of the population will have a single seizure in their lifetime. And your risk of having another seizure after that first one is about 50%. So it's about a 50-50 chance if you've had a single seizure that you'll have another one in your life. You said it's an abnormal movement or an abnormal, what, how did you reflect? Sensation like, or a sensation, behavior yeah. or something like that. But what does it usually typically look like? Right. What does it manifest yeah. itself Yeah, so like? the typical seizure that we've seen on television shows and things like that is used to be called a generalized tonic-clonic. We've kind of changed the terminology a bit to a bilateral tonic or bilateral clonic, but basically it's the whole body shaking that you've seen. So that's the typical kind of seizure that you'd find. Just the keys for those is because sometimes we get a lot of referrals from other physicians and they say, oh, this person person had a seizure, but what they did was they passed out and they had like a little bit of, you know, twitching afterwards. Like the key with these kind of seizures is your body is stiff, like stiff as a board, as we, mm. as we say, and then you have the stiffening and then you have the jerking movements afterwards. And they usually last like 30 seconds to a minute, it's not just a few seconds. So that's a typical kind of seizure. These are the, that's these, an epileptic seizure. Or is that even those seizures you said, the people who have one in their entire life, could it also look exactly, exactly like that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Really? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And a seizure could be caused by a lot of things. Like, you know, if you're a diabetic and your sugar goes low, you could have a seizure because of that. If you've overdosed on certain drugs, you could have a seizure. So seizure doesn't have to be due to epilepsy. It could be provoked by something else. You've been in a car accident, you have a severe traumatic head injury, but that could also mm. cause a seizure as well. So it doesn't have to be due to epilepsy, but it certainly can be in, in a lot of situations. The other main kind of seizure, I, I won't get into all of them because there are other kind of rarer types of seizures, but the other big one is like a staring spell, right? Staring and unresponsiveness. And there's different types of that. The one that we've seen a lot, you've probably seen it on TV. I think someone on the Facts of Life had seizures. Was that right? I'm trying to remember. It was one of the TV shows we watched as a kid. Lair? Joe? Yeah, was it? I don't Judy? know. Someone, someone let us know. Uh, Mrs. Garrett? No. Mrs. Garrett? So with this, you have staring and unresponsiveness. So these absence seizures are a common form of, of epilepsy. So you just have staring, unresponsiveness, usually lasts a few seconds, but you have many in a day, like hundreds in a day. You know, that's one type of staring spell. And those patients often have a good prognosis if you treat their epilepsy. Then there's another type of seizure. We used to call them complex partial seizures, but now we call them focal seizures with impaired awareness. So a focal seizure means it's starting at one part of the brain and spreading. So those patients can sometimes have what's called an aura. An aura is a warning that the seizure is about to occur. It's really just a mini seizure. And Ali grew up in Canada, so he knows what I'm talking about. These are these Canada minutes, right? These heritage minutes that we'd see mm. on television. Yeah. And it's, I smell burnt toast. Burnt toast. And they were talking about Wilder Penfield, who is at the Montreal Neurologic Institute, who did a lot of research into epilepsy. So in that little vignette that we saw on television, like a Canada history minute, a woman's like, I smell burnt toast. And that was her aura before she had a seizure. And then she had epilepsy surgery at the Montreal Neurologic Institute and ended up being cured. And we often associate that burnt toast thing with a stroke. 
as well? Is that no? Mis- that's that's that not incorrect? very common. It's not very common in general. It's a really good question, Ali. In general, and this isn't always exact, but in general, we have positive phenomena are associated with seizures. So, what are positive phenomena? Extra things in your perception. So, seeing a flashing light or a smell, or sometimes a rising sensation in your stomach, or a tingling sensation. A stroke usually associated with negative phenomena. I can't feel my arm. I can't see out of one side of my vision. I can't move something. Do you see the difference? Like one is an extra phenomenon, and the other is absent. So yeah, it's a very good question, but I would probably separate those things. Okay. So let's back this up, because I also wanted to... You're talking about different types of seizures. Correct. But is there only one type of epilepsy, but different seizures? Or is there different types of epilepsy that then each have its own seizure? Or Yeah, exactly. There's different types of epilepsy that they all have their own seizures. And when you come to see myself or my colleagues in child neurology, what our purpose is to figure out, you know, what's the cause of your seizures? And then what are we going to do about it? So we can talk about that second part later. But in terms of the cause of the seizures, again, maybe they were in a severe car accident. So they have a head injury. Maybe it was just due to low blood sugar because they're diabetic or and they took too much insulin or something like that. But in general, we could do some tests to figure that out. So we often do like EEG tests. And EEG is a brainwave test where we put electrodes onto your brain. They're kind of attached with like washable glue or stickers. We don't you know, it doesn't hurt you or anything like that. Mm. And that can show you the potential for seizure activity in somebody. So you don't have to have a seizure right during the EEG. It can show you that you're at risk for having seizures. Mm. And then sometimes we do MRI scans or things like that as well. So all this is to kind of figure out what kind of epilepsy you may have. And there's lots of different types. Some of them are very severe. In other words, they cause a lot of different types of seizures. They can be associated with developmental delay and maybe through a genetic cause. But there's also some benign epilepsy syndrome. So we can classify them as epilepsy syndrome. So different epilepsy syndromes can give rise to different kinds of seizures. I'll just give you one example because there's lots of different epilepsy syndromes. But the most common one we've seen is one called Rolandic epilepsy or benign epilepsy of childhood with central temporal spikes. But I like to call it Rolandic epilepsy because it's easier to say. There's a very peculiar kind of epilepsy that occurs in kids And it happens usually first thing in the morning, kind of when they're waking up, so like 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and they'll have a focal seizure, but without impaired awareness. So they're completely awake and alert, and what they'll have is slurring of their speech or a tingling in their mouth or abnormal movements around their mouth because this seizure originates in what's called the Rolandic area of our brain. And if you kind of map that out, it starts off in the area that controls our mouth movements and sensation. So they often have that. Sometimes they can progress to a full body seizure, as we talked about before, but often they'll just have this slurring, this abnormal sensation in their mouth or abnormal movements around their mouth and last like 30 seconds to a minute and that's it. And that's the seizure. And they're fully awake. They remember the whole thing. And This epilepsy, like I said, is called benign epilepsy of childhood with central temporal spikes or benign Rolandic epilepsy. So benign is the key terminology in that. So a harmless kind of seizure. Often kids only have one or two in their whole life and then they outgrow it. So it has a very good prognosis, but it's it's just a different appearance than what you'd see. And that's probably the most common epilepsy syndrome in kids. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing about epilepsy that everyone... This is the sense I'm getting. Everyone in society at any moment is at risk, right? It happens to one. I mean, that's a grim way to look at it. But because you said, you know, you can have a seizure the day you're born and you can also have one the day you die. You can also have one because of car accident, as you said. Is it also genetic? Yeah, yeah. And we're finding more and more there are genetic causes for seizures. And so usually if we see children, especially if they have difficult to control epilepsy and we've done an MRI scan and it's normal, sometimes we will send off an epilepsy panel to check for any genetic abnormalities that may predispose them to seizures. And 
This can even occur in patients who don't have a family history of seizures at all. You could still have a genetic cause. So families often say like, yeah, but nobody has seizures in my family. doesn't matter. It could still be a genetic cause. And yeah, and every year there's more and more genetic causes that we're finding for seizures. But again, that's usually in the more difficult to control seizures. The more severe epilepsy patients can often have a genetic cause. If you have kind of seizures every once in a while, you're otherwise, say, developmentally, intellectually fine, then often we don't find a genetic cause in those people. Okay. What I meant also when I was saying like, you're always at risk for getting epilepsy. I'm also suggesting that like, there's nothing you can do to sort of prevent it. Is that right? There's no life you can live. There's no lifestyle you can have to be sort of, you know, lower your risk of epilepsy. That's not the way this works. Is that right? Not to prevent epilepsy. No, exactly. So you're like, oh, to prevent heart disease, I should exercise. Exactly. Yeah. There's nothing in that for you. Yeah. No, not for this. And that's very important because a lot of families, there's some guilt. They're like, did we do something? Sometimes parents are like, or the mothers especially, like, did I do something when I was pregnant with them? If it's seizures in a little baby? And we're like, no, you didn't do anything like that. We'll talk about a bit more in a second about what to avoid if you do have seizures, that can kind of trigger things, you know, Mm. things that could be dangerous. But in terms of your actual risk of epilepsy, no, not really. Though there's a caveat to that. There's two things when it comes to adults. So I mentioned, I see this a lot in kids. So seizures are the most common thing essentially we see in pediatric neurology clinic, but it's not the most common thing they see in adult neurology clinic, which in theory doesn't make sense, but it's because a lot of kids can outgrow them the seizures. So that that's good. But in adults, the most common cause of seizures is actually strokes, if you can believe it, in North America and in Europe. And so uh, so not like epilepsy leads to strokes, they're not connected. It's once you have a stroke, you are now at risk of epileptic seizures. Well, they are connected in that the stroke causes some brain injury. And right. So in terms of your question, well, you can do things to prevent stroke, which is exercise, you know, diet and things like that, you know, address high blood pressure, address high cholesterol and things like that. So there is a way to kind of do that. The other interesting thing is if you look at the world, though, the most common cause of epilepsy is neurosister sarcosis. Have you heard of that before, mm, Ali? No. So neurosister sarcosis is a parasite that you get from eating uncooked pork or, or poorly cooked pork, and you get this parasitic infection of your brain. And that's actually the most common cause of epilepsy worldwide. Oh, God, oh God really? Yeah. And so, because again, that's in developing countries, you see that a bit more. And so, yeah. Avoid, you know, eating like pork products that are uncooked and things like that. So that's one way to also prevent it. But you can also get neurosystosarcosis. That has nothing to do with pork. Sometimes it's just in contaminated other foods or drinking water and things like that. There are other ways to get it. Before our practicing Muslim listenership gets too smug, there are other ways that you can get. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about this. I mean, you suggested, you know, some people can outgrow it. Aside from waiting and hoping that it goes away. I assume there are other treatments for epilepsy. So most children, we would suggest, unless they have that benign Rolandic epilepsy I was talking about, then Mm -hmm. we often don't treat because you may only have one or two seizures. Like, are you really going to treat someone for that? But in general, we suggest medication treatment for patients for seizures. It depends a bit about how old they are and things like that. But usually we would say it's not a permanent treatment, not lifelong. It'd be one to two years. I usually prefer two years, but there is some evidence for one year. And the idea is the medicine doesn't cure the seizures, right? It's not like taking an antibiotic to cure an infection. The idea is the medicine suppresses the seizures and allows your brain to outgrow the seizure disorder. And the way we test after the two years is to do an EEG test again, that brainwave test. And then if that's normal, then we would consider taking them off them after two years. And so there is medicine. I won't go into all the different medicines. There's like 14 or 15 different medicines. They all have their own particular side effect profile. But in general, we would try medicines first because they have the most scientific evidence for helping suppress these seizures. And then I have to bring up this very loaded subject, obviously. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but where does cannabis Mm-hmm. live and exist in the world of epileptic treatment as far as you know your work is concerned 
Right. And yeah, I would encourage people to check out our episode. It's actually the first episode of the podcast where we talk a bit about this. But what most pediatric neurologists do is we wait till you've tried a few medications. So I'm going to give you some stats here because they're pretty eye-opening. If you take all comers with seizures and you try one medicine. What was that word? All comers. All comers? Yeah. You never heard of that? No. Oh, it's like. Really? Yeah. It's like you use it in medicine all the time. Okay. All right. Yeah. All individuals yeah, okay. but who all come right. to your practice, if you take everybody. Okay. That's a weird. All right. Interesting. Ali will never use that term in the. No. In no, the no. So. Comedy anyway, audiences? No. If, if you take everyone that you see with epilepsy and you try one medicine, the chance of being seizure free on one medicine is about 65%. If you have to go to a second medicine, that chance of them becoming seizure-free with zero seizures drops to about 14% or so. And if you have to try a third medicine, it's like 1% to 4% chance of being seizure-free, okay? And that's not because of the medicine you chose or anything like that. It just means they have a difficult-to-control epilepsy. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the medicine. As long okay. as you choose it's an appropriate It's not a trial and error thing. Oh, it, it, it is. is. It Sometimes it can be. Sometimes you, you just, oh, this medicine didn't quite work and another one will work. But in general, what that would indicate is they have a difficult-to-control epilepsy. We call that refractory. So if you tried two, what we say, appropriately chosen medicine, in quotation marks, if you tried two appropriately chosen medicines and you still are having seizures, you are a refractory case. And the reason reason why we want to start thinking outside the box a bit is because you don't want to keep adding medicine because I just said it's like a one to 4% chance that you're going to have zero seizures after that. So it's not maybe the best thing to keep trying medicines in those patients. So after trying two, you need to think outside the box. So the first things we think about is the most important thing is, is the patient a candidate for epilepsy surgery? Okay, so if they have one area of the brain that's generating the seizures, right, and it's an area that you could do surgery on without causing a lot of problems, like you're not necessarily going to do surgery that's going to cause you to lose all your vision, right? If your vision is fine, that probably isn't a good compromise or to be completely weak on one side of your body. But if it's an area that we can do surgery on and cure your seizures, we would often proceed with looking into epilepsy surgery. So the idea is we want to refer patients for epilepsy surgery early on to make sure that this option is fully explored for them. And in some patients, depending on the area, they can have up to an 80% chance of having zero seizures after epilepsy surgery. So 80% is a lot better than 1% to 4%, right? So mm. it behooves us Another word? No, you don't want to use like it. I like okay, it. No, I'm into it. You'll allow it. Uh, it yeah. behooves us to make sure we are thinking about epilepsy surgery in all patients who are refractory. Okay. Mm -hmm. Other options for refractory seizures that we want to think about is the ketogenic diet, which we talked about before. We have a whole episode on the ketogenic diet. Again, high fat, high protein, zero carbs, essentially diet that we know works for seizures. It's very hard to adhere to and to stick to, but that's another option that we think about. Maybe if they're not a candidate for surgery or there's no one focal area, it's not one area of the brain that's causing the seizures. There's also some other things too. There's another surgical device you can implant called a vagal nerve stimulator. Our vagal nerve goes from our brain down and supplies a lot of our organs in our body, but you can simulate the vagal nerve in your chest and send a reverse signal up to the brain, and that can sometimes help seizures. It's kind of crazy that that works, but there is some evidence for that. But that involves implanting a device into your body. This is the longest answer I've heard to not answer the question about cannabis. I know. But yes. And then I was going to say, then, see, I'm just about to get to it. And yeah, then okay. the other thing you consider is cannabis. So again, if the way most pediatric neurologists now think about this, if you've tried two medicines, you might as well try cannabis because, you know, trying another medicine is probably not going to be that effective. So you might as well try it. As we talked about in our cannabis episode, cannabis is probably as effective as just adding another medicine. But there are some very specific genetic diagnoses that we think it might work a bit better for. So it's definitely worth trying. And again, if we've tried a couple of medicines and a family wants to try it or a patient wants to try it, I have no problem referring to them at that point. Right. I think this was more of an issue before cannabis was regulated, right? When it was unregulated and people were sort of finding, you know, different, what do you want to call it? Non-consistent strains of marijuana. 
that even lowered your chances even further. Yeah, right? it's still a bit of an issue in Canada in terms of, of getting consistent supply. In the U.S., there is a pharma-made cannabis product, and mm-hmm. that one has to conform to FDA regulations. So in the U.S., I would agree with that. In Canada, it's not quite the Wild West, but you still might not be getting the same supply every single time with the same amount of CBD versus THC. Okay. When you have epilepsy, or you've had a seizure or you know more than a few seizures are there things you can not do to avoid the reoccurrence or lessen the reoccurrence i mean is it that simple like if we use the screen time or yeah i mean there are a few things so yeah your question about screen time there is a subset of patients who can have seizures provoked by flashing lights and that's why you see you know before some movies or some video games they're like oh caution if you have epilepsy right it's not the vast majority of people with epilepsy and the way we test that is when you're getting that eeg test that brainwave test we'll do one test where we flash lights in front of them at different frequencies and if we see the potential for seizure activity at that time, I would say you should avoid this. But realistically, those patients will likely go on medicine. And in my opinion, the medicine should prevent seizures, whether you have flashing lights or not, right? So you need to avoid it a little bit, especially the beginning, maybe right when you're diagnosed. But ideally, if you're on a medicine, it should prevent that as well. The flashing lights aren't going to like overcome the medicine and cause it. That shouldn't be what happens. But in terms of other things you could do, there's not much that you can do to avoid it. One of them is sleep, and lots of kids don't get enough sleep. So we definitely encourage you to get a good night's sleep because sleep deprivation is another thing that can bring out seizures in someone who has epilepsy. And then being sick. But I mean, these days, Ali, like people washing their hands, wearing masks, you know, like Purell's everywhere. I don't know if we can do any more to avoid getting sick. But Mm -hmm. an illness, an intercurrent illness, as we call it, can lower your seizure threshold in someone with epilepsy. In certain cases of epilepsy, would you take like activities off the table? Like don't enroll them in sports, or if you're an adult, don't drive. Is that a thing? Do the licenses get taken away? Yeah, really good question. So with regards to sports, usually what we recommend is at the beginning, if you're just diagnosed with epilepsy, especially if you're playing contact sports or swimming is a big issue, we advise you to hold off on that until we kind of get things under control, especially contact sports. I get a a bit worried about it. And then afterwards, you can kind of resume those, those things. Swimming, you just need to always be accompanied by someone else. It doesn't mean you need to be like someone needs to be right beside you, but you can't, if you have a pool in your backyard, you can't just go for a swim right? Because that's how you could have a seizure and drown there, going in a hot tub, going in a lake, and even taking a bath. We recommend people with epilepsy to not take baths anymore. We recommend them to take showers only and leave the door unlocked. Because again, if you have a seizure in a bathtub, you go under the water and drown. Whereas, you know, even if you have a seizure in the shower, you might just fall, but you're not going to die. And so those are the main things to avoid, just in terms of other things that we tell people to avoid. Super high-risk activities, we probably tell people who have epilepsy maybe don't do, but we're talking about like skydiving, mountain climbing, scuba diving, right? Like those ones, if you had a seizure during this, like your chance of dying is extremely high. So we say probably those super high-risk activities you should avoid, but everything else you, you can continue. Maybe you want to wait a couple months to make sure your seizures are under control. But driving is an issue. So the two things that you need to do or have if you want to drive, you can drive if you have seizures. So that's the first thing. You are able to drive if you have epilepsy, but it has to be controlled, right? So usually it depends where you live, but on average is about six months of not having any seizures, right? Then you'd be able to drive and you need to take medicine and you need to take it every day and not miss any doses. And in Ontario, where we live, you have to inform the Ministry of Transportation by law with anybody you follow who's 16, who has seizures, and anybody who's not compliant with their medicine and is still having or is still having seizures. And I have had patients who are 16, had their license, and I see them in follow-up, and I'm like, oh, how's it going with taking your medicine? And they're like, oh, I miss it, you know, every month or so, I miss a dose. By law, we have to inform the Ministry of Transportation. No and, way. And, and your license will be taken away. And the families get very upset at me and the patients get really upset at me. Some of, okay. the, some of them, I'm being honest with you, some of them have just said, I'm not, I don't want to see you anymore because of that. So I'm very upfront with teens 
before they turn 16 and when they turn 16. Like you have to take this every day and it's the law. And the reason why it's the law is because if in Ontario, I didn't report somebody, right, to the Ministry yeah, of yeah, Transportation. Yeah, yeah, you're on the line. And, and they get to an day. accident and kill somebody, then I will go to jail for that. Right. And I always tell families, I'm not going to jail. So for that, anyway. Yeah, not for that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so that, 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 that's right. So driving is possible. But you know what happens is a lot of people, adults, if you're over 18, like someone our age, say, who had a seizure, they often would just say, I'll oh, just give me the medicine. I'm going to start taking the medicine. I'd rather just take it and restart driving earlier than wait to see if I have epilepsy and have a second seizure. So mm-hmm. often adults will want to go on medicine after just one seizure, even though they technically don't have epilepsy. So and it's just because of driving. They want to get back to driving as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. You talked about like the growing out of epilepsy and all that. Are there cases of people who struggle with epilepsy their entire yeah. lives? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like Again, a lot of kids will outgrow it. What percentage would you say outgrow it? The problem is it's variable depending on the type of epilepsy you have. Again, like that benign Rolandic epilepsy, you know, lots of kids outgrow it. In fact, almost all do. So it depends a bit about the type of epilepsy. That's not 100% in those patients, but almost 100%. Whereas if you start having seizures when you're, say, you know, two or three years old and you have multiple seizure types and you've tried multiple medications, those patients are less likely to be able to outgrow them. And then there's kids who have like, say, they had like a stroke or a brain bleed or something like that. So that's occurred and they have seizures because of that. You think, well, okay, now there's something structurally wrong with their brain, maybe they won't outgrow it. But I have had some of those kids outgrow it as well. So it can be variable. So I said, like I was saying, there are some of these more benign epilepsy syndromes, some patients with absence epilepsy, especially the younger ones often outgrow it really well. But otherwise, it is a bit variable. Well, that's all pretty interesting, man. I, I came into this discussion a little fearful about epilepsy, and I continue to be fearful. Nothing really changed in that regard. I just know more about it, but it's still exactly this very scary, frightening thing that it always was for obvious reasons. And I, I, you know, when we talked about that cannabis episode, we also talked about some of these parents turn to cannabis because they're desperate. And what parent wouldn't be desperate witnessing their child have even one seizure, never mind multiple seizures. I agree. And it definitely is scary. In those situations, you feel like your child is dying, uh, you know, when you see them having a a full body seizure in front of you. Mm -hmm. But again, the majority of kids were able to treat effectively. A lot of them have these benign epilepsies that they outgrow. So a lot of our goal is reassurance. Again, vast majority of kids we still do treat and a lot of kids outgrow it. So a part of us seeing them is to kind of assuage some of these fears that you have when we see them. All right. And there's lots of other things to talk about. There's newer treatments. Again, a lot of these genetic disorders and things like that. So, you know, we can maybe address those in special episodes in the future. What do you think of that? I'm here for you, bud. Okay, that's our show for today. Ali, anything you want to plug? Yes, my book, Is There Bacon in Heaven, is available for pre-order right now. If you go to Indigo, if you go to Amazon, wherever you you shop online, you should be able to find it. And it'll be out in late September, but available for pre-order right now. I I really appreciate if you ordered it. It's, It's a great boost. You know, these stores see that there's interest in the book. They order more books. It's profiled. And right now it's on Indigo's. Canada's most anticipated books in the fall list. So I'm really, really like thrilled and and humbled by the whole thing. And like we said, as the launch date gets closer, the drop date, the release date, I don't know, whatever. We'll talk to Ali about the book. We'll do some excerpts from the book. And then, of course, in the fall, you're going to have a busy fall. I don't know what's going to happen with this, trying to coordinate this podcast. A lot of it from hotel rooms, yeah, probably. But you also going on tour with a one-man show? Yeah. Does this taste funny? I like asking questions, huh? I'm a question guy. That's what I do. Does this taste funny? Hits the road across Canada or the Western part of Canada anyway, in mid-October to early November. And Run the Burbs, that sitcom starts back up. Uh, There's another comedy tour happening. And then there's, you know, book tour. I can't talk about it. I'm going to get anxiety just from thinking about it right now. Let us enjoy 
the summer. But if you want, if you're looking for summer reading, the book will be available later. So what you could do is summer buying and hold it for you. But then you'll have fall and holiday reading. Yeah, we probably should have called the podcast Doctor versus Comedian, question mark, to help tie in with this. But reach out to us, Dr. V Comedian, no question mark, at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Any other aspects of epilepsy you want us to cover in future episodes. We're at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Dr. V Comedian. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues, we talk about it for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.